We've just been singing the song, You Are My Son. The voice from heaven is clear. But many people, I'm sure, in the world today would disagree with both of those statements. That one, Jesus is God's son, and two, God speaks clearly. In fact, I'm sure millions of people would echo the title of this book. If I were God, I'd make myself clearer. Take, for example, comedian Woody Allen. Woody Allen once said, Oh, if only God would give me some clear sign. I'll just wait for the uh, mic to be fixed. Thank you very much. Well, as far as I'm aware, Woody Allen is still waiting for that one. But uh, let's just suppose that God decides he's going to answer his prayer. This morning, Woody is going to wake up to find himself a million dollars better off. And uh, as he's thinking about this and trying to process it over breakfast, suddenly he remembers what he said to God a while ago. In amazement, he reaches for his Bible, he reads it through, straight through lunch, and by dinner time, he has become a Christian. Isn't that amazing? We could imagine if God answered our requests miraculously like that, in fact, all sorts of good things might happen. I can think of at least three. Number one, assurance of salvation. Do you ever uh, find yourself wondering sometimes, is this Christian faith all true? Is it really true? Am I really forgiven? Am I really on the way to heaven? Has Jesus really died for me? Actually, uh, this is one of the most important questions, I think, that any, any Christian can ask. In fact, we were talking about it only this Tuesday at Christianity Explored. And someone came up with a great suggestion. Why can't God just give us all halos or something? Imagine that. So next time I'm worrying, am I really saved? Then I can just look up. And there, glowing above me, is the proof. Yes, I've been saved. And uh, just imagine if I had my halo and I stepped onto the LRT. Imagine everybody being blinded by this glorious light. And they'd be bound to ask questions, wouldn't they? Which uh, this leads to a second example, sharing the gospel. Wouldn't it be so much easier if God backed up our gospel presentations with a couple of miracles? I can uh, remember telling my, my friends at university about Jesus, but sadly, they just weren't interested most of the time in what I had to say. But how different would it be, perhaps, as, as I'm drawing out my six boxes of two ways to live, and every time God does some fantastic sign, Surely then, all my friends would believe, wouldn't they? Or uh, number three, maybe you're here today looking into Christianity for yourself. You you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you know lots of Christian friends. And uh, you've been thinking, perhaps, about Jesus for a while. And sometimes you find yourself thinking, you know, I would really like to believe that, if only I could. But I'm I'm just not sure it's all true. You know, if I were God... I would make myself clearer. And you might have have thought that to yourself again this morning as the Bible was being read. Because certainly, on first glance, as as we were reading about all the things that Jesus was doing and saying, it doesn't seem to be that clear at all, does it? Let me uh, just quickly paint in the picture for you of, uh, of what's going on, and you'll see what I mean. Actually, this painting has a very fuzzy foreground. Uh, We're in chapter 16 of Matthew's Gospel, so Jesus' ministry is well underway. He's uh, got a band of people following him, but just like here in Malaysia, Jesus' teachings are not the official state religion. But here is Jesus' big chance to change all that. At the end of the last chapter, 
Uh, Jesus' boat, you'll see at the end of 15, has just landed in the vicinity of Magadan, a Jewish area. And there to meet him are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these really influential religious leaders. And uh, they ask him to do something. You see that in verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and asked him and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Well, surely, this is exactly the moment Jesus has been waiting for. These men, if they would believe, surely everyone would follow. And what's their price? Just one little miracle. I think Jesus could do that. Surely that's not too hard for a man who's walked on water and raised the dead. And so, as we read through the passage, we're there eagerly waiting for Jesus to do some extraordinary miracle, some sign in the sky that'll prove once and for all, that Jesus really is the Son of God. But, as we read through, oh, how frustrating this passage is. Not one miracle in sight. In fact, Jesus seems to give these Pharisees and Sadducees all of about five minutes of his time in which he lands. He talks about the weather. Uh, He condemns them as an adulterous, wicked generation. Talks about some son of Jonah, gets in his boat, and travels back across the lake again. Well, what is going on? And then we get Jesus' conversation with the disciples. In uh, verse 6, he gives them a stern warning. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Which leaves the disciples completely baffled all the way through until verse 12, when finally... They understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, okay, couldn't Jesus have just said so in the first place? All in all then, it seems like quite a fuzzy foreground to this passage. But all this changes when we turn to consider the background. And uh, if we've been reading through Matthew's Gospel beforehand, we'll know that there is more to this than meets the eye. There is, in fact, a wicked plot afoot. And uh, we'll see uh, from a verse that's coming on the screen now. Back in chapter 12, the Pharisees had decided to go and plot how to kill Jesus. So with that in mind, we can see that these these Pharisees and Sadducees standing on the shore are not humbly waiting for Jesus to do a sign so that they can believe Far from it. They're waiting to trap him. And uh, we'll see how, as we consider the plot thickening. Verse 1 looks, it looks so innocent, doesn't it? The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. But this innocent question is a trap. And uh, we'll see how it's a trap when we consider God's own law. God's law which we've seen before in the Old Testament reading, Deuteronomy chapter 13, on the screen. If a prophet, or one who foretells by dreams, appears among you, and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if that sign or wonder which he has spoken takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him, and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer 
must be put to death because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way of the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. Deuteronomy is a book full of warnings. The Israelites have just been rescued by God's mighty works from the lands of Egypt where they've been in slavery. But before they go into the promised land, God warns them, be on your guard. False teachers will come. And even some of them will be able to do miraculous signs. But don't trust them, because their power does not come from God, and their message certainly does not come from him either. It's possible for miraculous signs to be done not by by God's own people, but by those who are following the ways of the devil. So don't follow them. Well, Jesus has quite clearly been doing all sorts of miraculous signs and wonders. And the question we all have to ask ourselves is this. Where does his power come from? Does it come from God or from somewhere else? We've been singing about this earlier on. There's no middle ground, is there? He speaks with authority. Sickness healed, the demons flee. But the Pharisees have already made their choice, as we see on the screen. When Jesus drove out a demon in chapter 12, they concluded, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And so, we can understand what their game is here in asking him for a sign. If Jesus does for the Pharisees a miraculous sign, they will not believe that it's from God. No doubt, they would point to it as a great evidence of demonic power. Point to the word of God and order Jesus' execution. This is a wicked trap. But Jesus sees straight through it and issues a thundering rebuke. Verses 2 to 4, he replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, hmm, Today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the signs of the sky, the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. Jesus knows that the reason the Pharisees and Sadducees do not acknowledge him is no intellectual reason. They've got plenty of signs already. The things he's been doing and saying testify greatly to his authority from God. No, the problem they have is not an intellectual one. It's deeper than that. It's moral. The Pharisees and Sadducees don't believe in Jesus because they have committed the greatest crime of all time. They have hated Jesus. Are you deaf or are you stupid? That's what my biology teacher used to say to us in biology lessons when he found that we weren't listening. Of course, we weren't uh, deaf and we weren't stupid. We were disobedient. And so too here are the Pharisees. It's not that they can't believe. It's that they won't believe. They're not stupid. Look, they can interpret the signs of the sky. It's it's the old saying, isn't it? Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. They can interpret signs. They're They're not blind. 
either to Jesus' miracles. They've heard and seen of all the things he's done and said. Now, one more sign is not going to convince them to believe, and they know it. The reason that Jesus calls them a wicked and adulterous generation is because in their pride, they would condemn Jesus rather than admitting their own sinfulness to God. With an attitude like that, there's no way that they can believe. Another miracle will do them no good at all. Well, where does that leave us today? I'm sure uh, lots of us here, have, whether Christian or not Christian, have all sorts of, uh, of questions, genuine questions, intellectual problems or, uh, or queries about Christianity. It may be philosophical questions or theological questions or scientific questions. I've certainly got a few of my own. But uh, Jesus is saying today that even though it's right to ask our questions, and if Christianity is true, it will stand up to questions. So let me encourage you to keep searching for the truth. But even though it's right to do that, the real reason why people reject Jesus is not intellectual. It's moral. And so, if uh, there's anyone here today not trusting in Jesus, I'd like to ask you a question of my own, just to spend a few minutes, perhaps sometime this week, to think about. And the question is this. If all my intellectual queries, questions, were answered to my own satisfaction, every single one of them were dealt with, would I then believe? If all my questions were answered, would I then believe? And the answer to that question will show you what's really keeping you from putting your trust in Christ alone. Of course, we uh, may still want a sign from God to, uh, to show us that it's all true. And if that's you, I've got good news today. Jesus has given us a sign. God has given us a sign to believe. And in his kindness, this is such a great sign that our entire faith can rest safely upon it. We've uh, already spoken of this sign today. In fact, we affirm it every week at church. And we should be remembering it every day of our lives. It's there. Can you see it? In verse 4. It's the sign of Jonah. Now, when I mention Jonah, I'm sure instantly lots and lots of people are thinking of that, that great story from the Old Testament, Jonah and the whale. But uh, for those of you who never went to Sunday school, uh, let me fill you in on the story of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet, a Jewish prophet, and God commanded him to go to the wicked city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and to warn them that God's judgment was coming for their wicked ways. But Jonah, astonishingly, didn't do what God said. In fact, he turned around and he went exactly the opposite direction, away from Nineveh, and he got on a boat and travelled out to sea. Well, in God's judgment, he sent a storm, and Jonah was thrown out of the boat, went down into the sea, and was swallowed by a great big fish. And that's not where the story ends, because three days later, we read, God commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto the beach. And the incredible thing is, Jonah was still alive. Then he went off to Nineveh and preached and the city repented and was saved. Now, that's the story of Jonah, but what's the sign of Jonah? Well, fortunately for us, Jesus has not left us in the dark. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus has already told us what the sign of Jonah is. It's there on the screen. For, says Jesus, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly 
of a huge fish. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We've already spoken today about the sign of Jonah in the Apostles' Creed. The sign of Jonah is Jesus' death and resurrection. He was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. That's the sign of Jonah. Just as uh, Jonah came under God's wrath, but for his own sin, and uh, was in the heart of a, in the belly of a whale for three days, well, Jesus also came under the wrath of God. But Jesus was not punished for his own sin, no. Jesus was punished for the sins of the world, that all who trust in him can be saved. And three days later, God raised Jesus to life again. That's the sign of Jonah. God raised Jesus, vindicating his every word, his every claim, and proving that his death was sufficient to pay for our sins. And so, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were wrong. Jesus could not have been a a false prophet doing evil signs worked by the devil. Certainly not. No false prophet could bring himself back to life again after he died, could he? And uh, there's certainly no way that God would raise an imposter to life and vindicate his words. No. Jesus is who he claims to be. His death and resurrection prove it. He is the Son of God. And so, if you're here today looking for a sign to convince you that Christianity is, is all true, well, look no further than the sign of Jonah. It's the clearest sign of all, the facts of history, that Jesus died and rose for us. And with that, Jesus left. First of all, Jesus left them and went away. He has no more time for these deceitful, wicked Pharisees and Sadducees. Earlier in the Gospel, Jesus has given them plenty of opportunities to repent and believe the good news. But every single time, they turned away and rejected what he had to say. In fact, with every sneer, their hatred of Jesus got stronger and stronger. And by the time we reach chapter 16, they've already made their choice. In just a few more chapters, we'll see the Pharisees and Sadducees plotting to have Jesus executed by crucifixion and screaming for his death. But blinded by their own hatred, they fail to realize that in having Jesus executed, they are themselves bringing to pass the sign of Jonah, which Jesus has just been speaking of. Well, uh, God is not going to forget what the Pharisees and Sadducees did that day. And on that last great day of history, the last trumpet will sound, the dead will rise, all of us will have to give an account of ourselves to God. And those Pharisees, the unforgiven Pharisees, who plotted for Jesus' death, will be condemned for the very crime of which they have just accused Jesus. False teaching. Well, none of us here today can make the excuse on that day that we don't know about Jesus. We've seen the sign of Jonah. And we have to make a decision for ourselves. Will we hate our sin? Or will we be like the Pharisees? Will we hate Jesus who exposes our sin and pleads with us to come to him for forgiveness? This is a stern warning for anybody who's tempted just to sweep all the knowledge that we have of Jesus under the carpet and forget that he even exists. But we do know 
and God will hold us to account for what we know. Well, for the rest of us, Jesus has a second warning. It's the main point of uh, the second part of the passage, verses 5 to 12. Be on your guard. Verse 5. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread, perhaps because they left in such a hurry. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we know from verse 12 that by yeast, Jesus means the false teaching. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus talks of the false teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. For we know that the Pharisees and Sadducees taught very different things. They contradicted each other at some essential points. So when Jesus refers to the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, he's not talking about the details. He's talking about the one thing that they, they can unite on. They teach that Jesus is not the Messiah. He is not the Son of God. And so the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is their false teaching that Jesus is not the Son of God. Be aware of that and be on your guard against it. Well, if that's what Jesus means, why does he talk about it as yeast? Surely Jesus knows by now that as soon as he starts to be clever, the disciples are going to get lost, aren't they? Why does he call it yeast? Well, there's a very important reason why Jesus describes this teaching as yeast. We've seen it earlier in Matthew's Gospel. Um, Yeast is something that spreads. A very small amount of yeast will spread through a very large amount of dough. And false teaching, sadly, spreads and corrodes. Just a a quick uh, survey of church history will show you many examples of churches which started so well based on good, solid doctrinal foundations, believing in Jesus as the Son of God. And yet, false teaching came, and they were corrupted. And Jesus can see the yeast already spreading onto this very boat. For with him are the disciples, and uh, they just don't understand, it seems, who Jesus is. It seems that they're already coming under the sway of the false teaching of the, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, because if they knew who Jesus was, do you think they would be worried about a bread shortage? Well, they shouldn't be, should they? Let's have a look at what Jesus says. They discussed this among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't they understand who he is? After all, just one chapter before, Jesus was able to feed over 4,000 people in a crowd with just seven loaves of bread. A chapter back again, uh, chapter 14, Jesus is feeding a crowd of over 5,000 men, starting with just five loaves of bread and two small fish. And uh, all the people eat, are satisfied. There's enough left over for every single one of the disciples to collect a basket full of scraps and take it home. So uh, Jesus is quite able to provide bread if they need it, even if he and his disciples are very hungry. He'll be able to sort that one out. But we can see that the disciples are worried about these things because they don't yet see clearly who Jesus is. No wonder Jesus was in such a hurry to get them away from the false teachers, to hurry them back across to the other side of the shore. And we know that of those 12 men in the boat with him, only 11 will finally prove true, as Judas Iscariot eventually betrays Jesus. 
for 30 silver coins. And so, what should we do when we come against false teaching? Well, number one, we should flee. But more than that, Jesus warns us, we have to do something active as well. Once we fled, we need to be on our guard against the yeast. How were the disciples to be on their guard? Well, Jesus tells them to remember what Jesus has already done. Remember the feeding miracles, disciples. That shows who I am. You don't need to worry. How is it, in fact, that the Israelites of ancient Israel were to remember who God was and to be saved from false teaching? Well, it's the same thing. We've seen it earlier in Deuteronomy 13 that they should not follow false teachers but remember God who brought them out of Egypt, who rescued them with mighty works and outstretched arms. And he provided bread for them in the wilderness. And in fact, God so much wanted his people to remember what he'd done for them that he gave them an annual celebration, a festival called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Each year, the Israelites would celebrate a meal together where they ate bread that had not been made from yeast, which reminded them of their rapid escape from Israel, from Egypt those many years ago. God wants them to remember how he saved them. That will keep them safe. That will keep them on their guard against false teachers. And so if the disciples were to be on their guard by remembering the miracles, the Israelites as a nation were to remember God's mighty acts of deliverance. How are we to be on our guard against false teaching? Well, we need to remember how God saved us. We need to remember the sign of Jonah, that Jesus died for us and rose again. And in God's kindness, He's also given us a a meal to help us remember this. It's just here, and we'll be sharing it later. The Lord's Supper, the bread, representing Jesus' body, reminding us that his body was broken for us, and uh, the wine, reminding us that Jesus poured out his blood, that all who trust in him can be forgiven. Remember the sign of Jonah. Be on your guard against false teaching, not only with the Lord's Supper, but every day as we read our Bibles, and we uh, talk to our friends and pray to God, thanking him for what he's done for us. And so, uh, to conclude, Woody Allen blames God, in fact, for his lack of faith. He says, if I were God, I'd make myself clearer. But let's just think. Imagine Woody Allen did wake up a million better off. Do you really think that he would believe? Or would it be more convenient for him just to brush it off as one of those coincidences and get on using God's good gifts in this world to live his life, his own self-centered way. And uh, to those three examples I gave earlier, number one, if there's anybody here looking for a sign, let me warn you, please don't be like Woody. Don't ask for God to grant some arbitrary request God has already performed the greatest sign of all. Look in the Bible. Read about Jesus' death and resurrection. It's on those solid facts of history that the Christian faith stands. And so, brothers and sisters, that's what we should be telling our friends. When we uh, feel slightly upset and miserable that they're not listening to us, and we wish that God might do a sign to back us up, to grab attention, remember this. We don't need any more signs. The gospel itself points to the greatest sign of all time, the sign of Jonah. The gospel is more powerful than the greatest sign that we can imagine.
And what about those times when our faith is weak? When we, uh, we really wish we had our halo to look up to? Well, God doesn't want us to look for a halo. He wants us to look to the Bible. So remember, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. So on the solid facts of history and the promise of God that the Christian's faith rests. We don't need any more signs to believe. We don't need more miracles in order to have faith. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. That is enough. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask for your help as uh, we try to heed this warning. So be on our guard against false teachers. We pray that uh, by your mercy you would always remind us of what Jesus has done for us. Please give us wisdom to be vigilant that if we do come across false teaching, we will flee it and uh, we will come back to the Bible. And we pray, Father, that you would help us in moments when we uh, start to doubt our faith and wonder if we really are saved, if it really is true. Please point us back by your spirit to what Jesus has done for us and fill us with confidence in your finished work on the cross and your promise to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.